as we continue to understand sort of what initiates this whole cascade, we'll continue to sort of refine and find new therapeutic opportunities for intervention, perhaps even earlier on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am Jeremy Holden, joined by my co-host, Jessica Chapman. Jessica, great to see you as always. Hey, Jeremy. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, always looking forward to our opportunities to chat. Jessica, I want to ask you a quick question. Uh, Do you ever play dominoes? I have played dominoes. It's been a long time, but when I was a kid, I played this quite frequently with my little sister. Now, were you playing the dominoes where you're matching or setting up dominoes and kind of knocking them down? Setting them up and knocking them down and seeing how well we could do that. Yeah, that seems like your speed. Uh, I'm terrible at dominoes, but maybe slightly better than I am at neurology. But Jessica, this week we had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Jeffrey Rothstein, director of the Robert Packard Center for ALS Research and a professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. Alyssa Coyne, a postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins University and a 2018 recipient of the ALS Association's Milton Sefenowitz Postdoctoral Fellowship Program. Jessica, they had an exciting paper that was published recently uh, that kind of talked about the chain of dominoes in the development and progression of ALS. Well put, Jeremy. Yes, we did get to chat with them about their paper that they published, and we're going to go into that in detail here in a moment. But just wanted to note that I really enjoyed speaking to Dr. Rothstein and Dr. Coyne as they were so passionate and excited about the work that they're doing and the foundation this is laying for future successes and breakthroughs in ALS research. Yeah, finding one of those earlier dominoes in the chain, but why don't we get out of the way and hear directly from Dr. Rothstein and Dr. Coyne. Dr. Rothstein, Dr. Coyne, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're very excited about this. Uh, Always looking forward to talking about research breakthroughs. So I just kind of want to start things off with the basics. And uh, so recent paper that was published talking about CHMP7, how it's connected to TDP43 mislocalization and development of or progression of ALS. Those are words I can read off a page, but I can't fully understand what they mean. So can you walk us through your findings and and what it means for uh, ALS research going forward? You bet. Yeah, so I'll start off by introducing TDP43 as it relates to ALS. So TDP43 is an RNA binding protein that sort of regulates different aspects of RNA metabolism to regulate protein expression in the cell ultimately. And so previously in ALS and ultimately other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and frontal temporal dementia, this normally nuclear protein is found present in the cytoplasm and this aggregates, and you can actually see that in end-stage postmortem tissues in ALS, AD, Alzheimer's disease, and frontotemporal dementia. And so while that was identified about 15 years ago now, no one really understands why that happens or how that happens. And so my work as a postdoc in the lab has really focused on identifying defects in the nuclear pore complex which is sort of like the control center of the cell. And it forms a gate between the nucleus and the cytoplasm to regulate the compartmentalization of different proteins and mRNAs um, between the nuclear and cytoplasmic compartments of the cell. And so TDP43 is one of these proteins that can actually shuttle through this complex. 
And so we've hypothesized for a while now that perhaps an injury to this nuclear core complex or control center could perhaps contribute to the mislocalization and dysfunction of TDP43 that's seen in ALS and related neurodegenerative diseases. And so CHIMP7 is a protein that is involved in multiple cellular pathways, but it's predominantly known for its role in nuclear remodeling. And recent work from our collaborator, Patrick Lusk at Yale, has identified a role for CHIMP7 and escort 3 complexes, so its protein partners, in remodeling nuclear membranes and surveilling the nuclear pore complex to maintain homeostasis to ultimately maintain trafficking and compartmentalization between the nucleus and the cytoplasm. In ALS, this protein CHIMP7 actually accumulates in the nucleus and can initiate an injury to the nuclear pore complex structure. And this can ultimately lead to loss of TDP43 function within the nucleus and mislocalization of the pro- of TDP43 protein itself from the nucleus to the cytoplasm. So this builds on prior work we started years ago where we were trying to understand the early defects in a familial form of ALS and learn that the nuclear pore itself was in some way not working properly. And it builds most recently on Alyssa's prior work where she identified how the nuclear pore was defective. It was missing pieces, we'll call it. I like to use the term probably not properly as the pore is being disassembled. And her most recent study, essentially what she just described to you, explains the mechanism how it becomes disassembled in ALS, and then downstream of that, how that then affects TP43. And we want to emphasize, this is a pathology that's come to all sporadic patients. That is both the nuclear pore defect, but previously the defect in TP43, this loss of nuclear TP43. Thank you, Dr. Rothstein. Thank you, Dr. Coyne. It's certainly helpful to understand the foundation of why something's occurring before we can really move forward. So that's really helpful in understanding. And thank you for sharing that. So I know it's been noted before on this show about antisense oligonucleotide. Hopefully I did not butcher that. Drugs. But can you walk us through how they work and why they're important in ALS research in general, but also to CHIMP7 um, specifically? Sure. So ASOs or antisense oligonucleotides are elements of of the nucleotides, the elements that the building blocks of either RNA or DNA, and they're complementary. That is, they're matching partners. And when you add them to a cell artificially, as you can do with an ASO therapy, again, antisense oligonucleotide therapy, they cause a degradation of the endogenous RNA in a cell. And that's a way of essentially eliminating a toxic species in the cell. So it's the earliest starting point in many diseases where there's defects in the nucleotide sequence. The ASO essentially eliminates that very first starting point. To use an old cliche, it's like a domino. You're getting rid of that first domino that falls. ASOs, however, are not a very good therapy for giving by mouth or by intravenous So the therapies to date for the nervous system and most advanced therapies based on ASOs are given um, into the spinal cord or the fluid around the spinal cord. It's called an intrathecal injection. This has actually been done for a while in ALS. It started with the SOD1 antisense trials, which are still now well underway with exciting results that have been reported in the last year. And quite honestly, it began there first, but Sometime later, that same kind of therapy, different version of this drug was used in spinal muscular atrophy 
and it is what I consider the penicillin of the 21st century. It is essentially stops the disease in those children and they regain normal health. And so this has become a very powerful therapy that we can use. And finally, the most important part, we know therapies take a long time to develop. It often takes 10 years to build a new molecule for therapy. ASUs move much faster. And so this research that Alyssa and I just published, we're already working with the drug companies to develop that ASO therapy. It'll be, of course, their therapy to use, but it moves um, easily half the time a normal drug goes to development to a patient. Yeah, that timing uh, is an important point to, to maybe dig into a little bit. Where in the chain of getting from where you are, where we are today, just talk through where does it go from here? What are the next steps in the, in the development and in the research process? Sure, happy to, to discuss that. Well, in, pa- in the past, many therapies were first developed in a model, a rat or a mouse, for example. Right. This gene product is very different in mice versus humans. And this is why the platform that Alyssa used, induced pluripotent cells, essentially human neurons from our patients, is the ideal platform to discover this drug in and to use this drug. And so we began without a mouse model, if you will, we went right to the human cells. We tend to refer to this as like the equivalent of a human biopsy from our patients. So we've worked out, and absolutely we've worked this out with the help of Ionis, the pharmaceutical company that's been a real um, strong collaborator in this project. And so we've worked out a molecule that works very good in the laboratory. They then, as well as any commercial partner, whether they develop it for Um, a drug or some other commercial partner, have to then optimize it. And we'll need to still do some testing in animals just to make sure it's relatively safe in animals. And it's, and of course, we all know that ALS is a terrible disease and and safety to some patients becomes a minor player when you have such a terrible disease, but they need to know before they'll ever bring it to patients that you can give it to a mouse and suddenly the mouse doesn't drop dead in two hours. So there's simple things that we need to know first, and that's in their hands. We'll help them out a little bit, but it really ultimately goes to their hands. But in my past experience, an ASO moves within a few years to patients. Now, I can't tell you that it'll be a few years for this molecule, but in my also my past experience, it's been more like a decade. So this is going sure. faster. If in fact it is a good molecule, that's where the next set of experiments are. Dr. Rothstein, Dr. Coyne, you, and you've already alluded to this, Dr. Rothstein, but you know your research did look specifically at the C9 mutation, and you talked about ASOs. And I love that you said it like that. So I don't have to necessarily pronounce that entire word because clearly I don't do a great job with that. But, you know, is there a reason to believe that the cellular defect that you've identified in your research is actually going to provide a pathway or could rather a pathway in ALS development not connected to that C9 mutation? Can you talk a little bit about that more? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to let Alyssa say a little more. We started with C9 because her prior research had shown that the nuclear pore was defective in C9 patients, again, using a pretty good complement of these IPS lines. And when we talk about IPS, potent lines, a line is essentially an individual patient. Fortunately, we have a separate program, which we're not talking about today, called Answer ALS, which is a program of a thousand patients around the country. We've made hundreds upon hundreds of these lines from hundreds and hundreds of patients. And Alyssa will now tell you about how she shifted the focus to really look at those sporadic lines. Yes, so using 35 of those lines available through Answer ALS, so 35 different patients, I actually studied this pathway and this pathogenic cascade in sporadic ALS as well. 
and I can see that it's very, it's also very prominent and the defects are, the nuclear core defects are reminiscent of what we see in familial C9 um, ALS as well. So this really provides strong evidence that this could be a fundamental pathway and a fundamental early initiating event for both familial and sporadic ALS. Hmm. I'll add that an important number. When most labs study these lines, they'll study two, three, or four. And that's like studying two or three, four patients. That's nice, but that's not a population. When she studied 35 lines, that's like doing a small clinical trial. That's 35 patients. And that's the real value of this platform that none to date can match. And we're not alone in it. These lines are, of course, fully available. But it, it was pretty exciting for us because it really wasn't just in a handful of small experiments. This was a really a, a true population study. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about dominoes. We don't have to torture that metaphor if it doesn't work anymore. But, we're, you know, it, it, if, I'm, if I'm understanding right, and I very well may not be, we're talking about identifying a cellular breakdown earlier than we had previously known. Right. How much earlier are we talking about in terms of being able to think about earlier interventions in terms of earlier treatments? Is that something that we can conceptualize? Um, so we believe that the nuclear accumulation uh, and mislocalization of CHIM7 from the cytoplasm to the nucleus might be perhaps one of the earliest initiating events pathogenically in ALS. We also know in a subset of ALS, such as C9 ALS, for instance, that the initiating domino there is actually a genetic mutation in the gene. Um, and so something we, we can discuss later on is um, sort of where the, where the research goes from here. Um, but we think we've we've landed on a very early event, um, at least in cultured neuro, uh, IPS neurons uh, that Jeff had described earlier. So these patient biopsies, this is the earliest event that I have been able to identify thus far. Wow. Translating that to patients is a little harder. We don't really know. There's been very few studies of patients where brain tissue was examined before they actually had ALS. Um, accidents, things like that. From the limited data that's available, um, it looks like, as Alyssa pointed out, that a very early event is this mislocalization, followed by an event that many other labs study, which is this aggregation of TDP43 outside the nucleus in what's known as the cytoplasm. Pathologic studies and our own studies of real human neurons teach us that that clearance is really likely the first event. Now, can we translate that to the time we actually intervene in the clinic? I don't think we're ready to do it, and no one's ready to do that yet. So all we know is the earlier we get in ALS, the more hope we have that we'll be impactful. I've run clinical trials since really is all, since 1995, and I can tell you when we look very late in the disease, we haven't done so well in terms of drugs. But what's, what's important to point out here um, that we didn't mention yet in terms of translating this therapeutically is when I did those ASO studies in these cultured neurons, I actually treated these neurons at a time point where the pathogenic cascade had already occurred. So these neurons already had nuclear core injury. They already had TDP43 dysfunction. They already had nuclear accumulation of CHIM7 initiating this all. And when I treat at that time point and now reduce CHIMP7 protein levels, I can reverse the injuries that had already occurred. Right. So the point being wow. that it's not past, we're not uh, past the point of no return. We can still repair an injury once it's occurred, at least in this human cell line, which we hope 
recapitulate what goes uh, what goes on in patients. Well, that's incredible to know something that would be, I know, bring a lot of hope to a lot of folks early with ALS with the, the possibility that something could be done to, down the road, reverse some of these effects. Uh, Dr. Coyne, kind of going to your note about your research, you were a 2018 Milton Seifenowitz postdoctoral fellow. We've talked about that program on this podcast before. It's a program in which the ALS Association has been able to initiate things to the Seifenowitz family. But can you talk about how this fellowship helped move your research forward in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so this fellowship really allowed me the flexibility to start defining and identifying these early pathogenic events. Um, So it really helped me sort of identify the injury to the nuclear core complex and sort of dig into the mechanism by which this was happening um, to help sort of move this research along and and trying to find new therapies for ALS that hopefully eventually will make it to clinic. And it also sort of on top of the research helped helped build my career as I now start to transition to my own independent position. So. Yeah. Fellowships like this are really important for starting junior researchers off in their careers. That said, I've also, I, my own lab has been a long-term recipient of Alice of funds. And this project also was funded by Alice separately for grants to my lab. So overall, the organization has been really instrumental in helping us move this research forward. And we will be sure to share um, some links to resources in the show notes so folks listening at home can learn more about those programs. You mentioned moving the research forward, where the research goes from here. So let's conclude there. What are the next steps in, in this particular line of research? Yeah, so this is a really exciting time for me, starting to transition into my own and starting up my own research lab. And so my future directions in terms of looking at CHIMP7 research is we've been talking about identifying that first domino and identifying the initiating event. And so we know that nuclear accumulation of CHIMP7 can initiate this pathogenic cascade, but this is a protein that's normally found in the cytoplasm and not the nucleus. And so my open questions that I'm interested in pursuing, or one of them moving forward is, what actually initiates bringing CHIMP7 into the nucleus and keeping CHIMP7 in the nucleus to quote unquote, disassemble the nuclear pore complex and initiate this pathogenic cascade, especially in sporadic ALS where there's no known genetic mutation. And so we have a few hypotheses that um, I'm working on testing and I'm interested in looking further into in the future to sort of identify this initiating event that initiates CHIMP7 initiating (laughs) nuclear pore complex injury. And one of these might be actually genetic variants in nuclear pore complex proteins or nuclear envelope proteins themselves that may act as a damage signal to sort of recruit the surveillance and homeostasis protein and pathway. Yeah, that's a particularly exciting idea that we have in the group. We all have normally acting proteins, but slight variations. If you look at all of us, we have slight differences in our face, in our eyes, And this surveillance pathway may pick up those slight differences over time, leading to the injury, as opposed to a strong genetic mutation like the C9 mutation. So that's at least one way to explore this in sporadic ALS. The other very important point, and we've seen this a lot now with things like COVID research, this fundamental research program, aside from giving us a fundamental understanding of cell biology, does begin to lead to new candidate drugs. When we started this, years ago, we never we were hoping to fix the nuclear pore. We didn't know that this pathway would be the direction. It was a sequential series of basic research that led to this point. And so by Alyssa continuing along those lines, almost certainly will lead to those new opportunities. 
as we continue to understand sort of what initiates this whole cascade, we'll continue to sort of refine and find new therapeutic opportunities for intervention, perhaps even earlier on. Finding new dominoes and new domino sets and lines of dominoes, right? Yeah. Um, I have now completely tortured the metaphor. Uh, <laughs> but uh, those, I think, were all the questions we had for you. Uh, any closing thoughts beyond what we've discussed that you want to share with listeners? No, I, again, we, there's two sides of this. One, this is exciting research for us. I've been researching ALS pathogenesis for many years. And this is some of the best, if not the best research, with one of the most exciting therapeutic inroads that we think could be useful. Also because it bridges to potentially other diseases like um, Alzheimer's, where 50% of Alzheimer's patients have a TDP43 abnormality. So side projects were beginning to explore that as well. And it also comes full circle to the fact that organizations like ALSA have been instrumental in allowing us to go forward like this. Yeah, well, a hopeful note to end things on. Uh, Dr. Rothstein, Dr. Coyne, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rothstein, and thank you so much, Dr. Coyne. Again, that was a pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you so much for sharing all this great information with our listeners. And I know that we'll all very much be looking forward to future research and papers that you'll be publishing in the near future. Yeah, always exciting to hear from some of the great researchers who are doing the work of trying to help further our understanding of this disease and find pathways that can eventually lead us toward potential treatments and ultimately a cure. That's going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, please find time to rate and review us. It is a great way for us to connect with even more people. This week's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.